a couple years ago, well, quite a few years ago, one of my favorite bands um, <laughs> is called Modest Mouse. They put out an album called Good News for People Who Like Bad News, which is a great album title, and it's also a great title for the book of Nahum. If you like bad news, you're going to love this book. And um, I'm going to start in verse 1 and then give you a little bit more context. A prophecy concerning Nineveh, which sounds familiar, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkoshite. Okay, so here's what this book is. This is a book of prophecy through the prophet Nahum. We don't know much about him at this point other than that he's an Elkoshite, which sounds like something hunters need to watch out for, right? But uh, it's actually a real place. Um, and he doesn't come out and tell us when in history he's writing, but from the events described in the book, we can get a pretty good idea of what's going on. So here we are in the story, um, somewhere around 630 years before the time of Christ, and God's people, the Israelites, have uh, essentially, as a result of a civil war, divided into two kingdoms, northern and the southern kingdoms of Israel. The northern kingdom keeps the name Israel, which is confusing, if you don't know that, and then the southern kingdom takes the name Judah, okay? And so, um, got a map real quick to show you kind of where we are geographically. Um, northern kingdom is basically just north of Jerusalem. Southern kingdom starts south of Jerusalem. And that whole orange area is the growing Assyrian empire, okay? So this is Israel's neighbor to the east that has become this dominant player in the world at the time. And they are kind of systematically invading and conquering all the nations around them. And um, what you need to know, basically, is that Assyria is the world's first military superpower. Okay? So they're this brutal and powerful force. And some historians actually credit the Assyrians, the Assyrians with inventing genocide. Okay, so they're the first military power that doesn't just go in killing soldiers in a, in a battle context, but is actually wiping out entire nations of men, women, and children. Okay, so anyone who tried to come against the Assyrians, it didn't go well for them. And uh, we talked about this a little bit last week, but the Assyrians were known for just being these super violent, bloodthirsty, uh, brutal soldiers. So it wasn't just like we're taking over your country, but it's like we're going to inflict as much gore and pain as violent, and violence as we can. And so they're, they're carving up bodies, skinning their captives alive, uh, doing all kinds of terrible things. There's actually a series of Assyrian reliefs that are in the British Museum in London. I've got a few pictures. These are dug up in the 1840s by archaeologists. And uh, in one of the kind of classic epic palaces in Assyria, there are these huge, like, wall-sized murals that are carved out of stone, and they show some of, in detail, the reality of the time that, that the uh, prophet Nahum is writing to. So you can see these captives that are, like, shish-kebobbed on these poles, um, being paraded through the streets as as a, a victory uh, celebration. And there, Nahum will talk in chapter 3 about piles of dead bodies. You can see the pile down the bottom. And, and again, more captives up on poles. And so, um, so that's, that's Assyria. And as we talked about last week when we looked at Jonah, um, 
Nineveh is this kind of primary city in the Assyrian Empire. And so um, we get that same picture, that the Ninevites, the people of Nineveh, who uh, this prophecy concerning Nineveh, this is what you need in your head, right? Evil, violent, bloodthirsty, invented genocide. Okay, that's who God is dealing with here. And um, if you remember last week, the story is that Jonah is called by God to go to Nineveh, which you would never want to go there, right? And uh, to preach a message of warning to the Ninevites that God is going to judge them if they don't turn from their ways and repent. And miraculously, the Ninevites listen, and they believe his word. They respond in faith and repentance. The king issues this citywide call to, to repent and to turn to Yahweh, the God of Israel. Uh, and it sort of is a happy ending as far as Nineveh is concerned. Now, 150 years have now passed in the story. And uh, you kind of may leave Jonah going, well, I wonder what happened. Like, did Nineveh just turn into this super cool, God-fearing town? Apparently, they didn't. Apparently, their repentance didn't last very long. And before too long, they quickly again start invading and conquering other nations. And eventually, they had attacked the northern region of Israel and all the tribes that lived there. And now, um, the Assyrians are about to... It's getting close to the end for them, all right? God is, is kind of warning them. So go back to that map, if you would, would, Natalie. They're systematically kind of conquering, taking over, making everything orange. And um, they've got the northern kingdom. And south of Jeru Jerusalem now is, is the south of Israel. It's where Judah is. And so if you're watching this like on a game of risk, there's no doubt what their next move is going to be. They're looking at Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel. And look at all that orange and then that tiny little sort of triangular peninsula above the Red Sea. That's where they're moving next. Okay, so that's kind of the military context. Now, here's what you need to know about Judah. The tribe of Judah, these are essentially the hillbillies of the Old Testament. Okay, like they live up in the mountains, drinking old Milwaukee watching NASCAR, <laughs> like, Judah is actually, in Hebrew, literally translates Prineville. Um, so, <laughs> that's not funny. I shouldn't have said that. But you get the idea, right? They're not a global threat, right? They're just having a good time doing their thing. I should not have said that. So... Um, when you come to Nahum, you're getting God's word to the inventors of genocide. Just going, uh, it's not going to go well for you, just so you know. And uh, the first chapter is a declaration of what God is going to do. Essentially, through Nahum, God's speaking to the Assyrians, the Ninevites, and saying, here's what's going to happen. And then the second and third chapter, it's just a short, short book, um, basically describe how that's going to happen. Okay, so God lays out the case. So we're going to read um, the rest of chapter 1. Kind of a big chunk, but I think uh, <clears throat> it's important that we actually dive right in to, uh, to the content of, of this book. So, Nahum chapter 1, starting in verse 2. This is what God says to the Ninevites through 
or concerning the Ninevites through Nahum. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger but great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm, and clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and dries it up. He makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and Carmel wither, and the blossoms of Lebanon fade. The mountains quake before him, and the hills melt away. The earth trembles at his presence, the world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into the realm of darkness. Whatever they plot against the Lord, he will bring to the end. Trouble will come a second time. They will be entangled among thorns and drunk from their wine. They will be consumed like dry stubble. From you, Nineveh, has, come, has one come forth who plots evil against the Lord and devises wicked, wicked plans. This is what the Lord says. Although they have allies and are numerous, they will be destroyed and pass away. And although I have afflicted you, Judah, I will afflict you no more. Now I will break their yoke from your neck and tear your shackles away. The Lord has given a command concerning you, Nineveh. You will have no descendants to bear your name. I will destroy the images and idols that are in the temple of your gods. I will prepare your grave, for you are vile. Look, there on the mountains, the feet of one who brings good news, who proclaims peace. Celebrate your festivals, Judah. And fulfill your vows. No more will the wicked invade you. They will be completely destroyed. So the first thing that happens in the book of Nahum is what's called a theophany. A theological epiphany. A sudden revelation of God. And so it's Nahum getting this vision in clarity of who this God is. And then he records it in this poem, or even likely a hymn. And what he describes, if we look at really the first half of this chapter, is pretty uncomfortable, isn't it? For a lot of us to be confronted with this language of God as being jealous and avenging and filled with wrath and all that kind of stuff, this is not a picture of God that we like. Right? This is not a verse that gets crocheted onto pillows and that sort of thing, is it? And especially after last week, there's another uh, theophany of sorts in Jonah, which we kind of spent some time on, and it goes like this. The Jonah slide. The Lord, no, back, back. A gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. A God who relents from sending calamity. So what, what we gathered from last week is if we have any questions about what kind of God we have, what is the God of the Bible like, God has revealed that to us. 
This is from Exodus 34, and as I told you last week, this is the most repeated or quoted scripture in the scripture. So the biblical writers are constantly calling Israel's attention back to God's self-revelation on, in Exodus 34. And Jonah concludes his, this whole story by going, this is the kind of God we have. He's gracious, he's compassionate, slow to anger, bounding in love, relents from sin and calamity. Okay? So that's where we left last week. Now this week, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. Okay? So that's confusing. I hope that's confusing for you, right? I hope you're paying enough attention to the text and taking the Bible seriously enough to go, huh, I wonder how that all fits together, right? And the truth is, for us following Jesus in this culture, one of the common objections or criticisms that we may come up against when dialoguing about our faith with our non-Christian friends is this question of like a wrathful, angry, violent Old Testament God. Right? I ran into a friend from high school recently and uh, hadn't seen each other in 15 years or something like that. And uh, I'm just getting reacquainted. She asked, what are you doing? I said, I'm a pastor. And she just laughed so hard. Thought I was joking. Because uh, the last time she saw me, I had blue hair and a skateboard and played in a punk rock band. And um, she's like, no, really, what are you doing? I was like, I'm a pastor. And um, so it turned into this really fun conversation where, you know, she's uh, somebody who... who Hasn't, hasn't received Christ and doesn't, doesn't identify as a Christian in any way. And, um, and we were able to just have an honest conversation. She goes, yeah, I really like Jesus. I really love the vision that he has for justice and reconciliation and forgiveness and non-judgment. Um, she's like, she goes, but what's up with God in the Old Testament? And uh, maybe you've had somebody ask that question of you before, or maybe you've asked it or struggle with it yourself. What's up with God in the Old Testament? What's up with a God that's jealous and avenging and all that kind of stuff? Well, I told you that this book is good news for people who like bad news, right? Um, This actually is intended to be a book that brings comfort to its readers. So it's not primarily a book of confrontation, but it actually is a book of good news, a comforting book that when its first readers would have come across it. It would have been not like something they really had to wrestle with intellectually, but they would have gone, oh my gosh, this is amazing. This is so good. Okay, so obviously we're we're, we're a couple steps disconnected from that. When we read this and go, that sounds like bad news, when it was intended to be a book of good news. And so I'll start by just... um, making the statement that this God who's described in the first few verses of of Nahum, whether we realize it or not, this is the kind of God we want. This is good news. This is the kind of God not only do we want, but the kind of God we need. And to make that point, I'm going to share with you a poem that I wrote. I've never written a poem before, but I've written a poem for you this morning. And it's called Nahum, chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, except the exact opposite. Okay? (laughs) So I've taken this text and written it to mean the exact opposite thing of what the writer intent. The Lord is a passive and laid, laid back and passive God. The Lord never loses his cool, and he's always really nice to everyone. 
The Lord has no enemies, and if people want to do really wicked, awful things to each other, he's not going to try to stop them. It's cool. If he ever gets bummed out over all the evil in the world, he just tries to think happy thoughts and usually gets over it pretty quick. Sometimes things happen that make the Lord feel powerless, and he blows his top instantly. But then he realizes that it's all out of his control, and there's not much he can do about it anyway, so he just chills. The Lord has no problem with people who are guilty of all the worst kinds of evil getting off the hook easy. After all, who is he to judge anyone? And sometimes, when it's really windy and stormy outside, God gets scared and hides. Poor little God. My first poem ever, right? So, <laughs> so that's a picture of God that sounds more like Uncle Oscar from Arrested Development, if you know that <laughs> reference, right? Like just this hip hippie who smokes pot in a van, goes around giving everybody back rubs all the time. And we're going, is that the God that we want? <laughs> Laid back and passive, powerless against evil, not worried about all the jacked up stuff in the world then or now? That's not the God we want, is it? That's not good news. And so as Nahum reveals this vision of the true God of the universe, this is the God that we want. This is the God that we would choose if we were really paying attention. Because just like then, we live in a world that's super messed up in a lot of ways. It's, it's just not hard to find examples of evil and wickedness, and injustice, and oppression uh, here locally in our context and all around the world. It's just we've grown kind of just used to the fact that our world is just full of all this sin and wickedness and evil all the time. And for us, as Christians, as kind of uh, people who are learning to identify with the nation of Israel, we come to God with this question. What do we do with the fact that this world is so break, broken and full of evil and wickedness and injustice? What does God have to say about that? Does he have anything to say or is he just kind of cool with it? I don't want a God who's cool with it. I want a God who's got something to say about it and more than that, a God who's going to do something about it. Don't you? That's what we want, right? So this is a good news book. It doesn't sound that way when we first read it, but the Bible gives us this picture of a God who is a just king or a great judge. Okay, so seven times in chapter one, God promises the complete and permanent destruction of Nineveh. In verse eight, he will make an end of Nineveh. In verse 9, trouble will, come a, will not come a second time. In verse 10, they will be consumed like dry stubble. In verse 12, they will be destroyed and pass away. In verse 14, you will have no descendants to bear your name. Later in verse 14, I will prepare your grave. And at the end of verse 15, they will be completely destroyed. Okay, so seven times, which is Biblically significant, right? God speaks that there will be a complete and final judgment and annihilation of Nineveh. Okay? But the final verse of chapter 1 
has this tone of, look, they're on the mountains. One who brings good news. One who proclaims peace. Okay, so this is confusing, right? God's saying complete, utter destruction. He's going to wipe out this whole people. And the prophet Nahum is writing it as in, hey, guess what? Great news. So obviously, the point here, that this message of good news, this message of peace, is that God is going to deal decisively with the evil, the wickedness, and the injustice in Nineveh and caused by the Ninevites. So all these people in Judah that he's writing to have been living in fear for years now, knowing that they're the next move on Assyria's radar and feeling completely powerless, knowing there's nothing we can do about it when Assyria decides it's time to come conquer us. And so this book isn't written to Nineveh. It's written concerning Nineveh. It's written to Judah. It's a book of comfort where God's saying, I'm going to take care of you guys. I'm going to wipe out the biggest threat that you've ever faced. Something that you're completely powerless against, God would say to his people, you're in my hands. Because I'm a jealous and avenging God. I'm not going to let anything happen to you. And so the good news for them and for us today is that there is a God of justice. And as you read throughout the prophets over the next seven weeks, you're going to get a lot of these kind of judgments and these warnings, but then you're also going to get these promises for reconciliation and hope and restoration. And you have to see those two at the same time. That as God is committed to pursuing the restoration of all things, he's going to have to deal with evil and wickedness along the way. And so for a people of God like Judah, or for those of us today that, feel, that have been victims of injustice or oppression, and maybe it's not in this room, but our, our brothers and sisters globally or around the country, we know that's good news. This is a book of comfort. This is a book of peace. That God is going to make all things right in the end. Okay, so my five-year-old Mo, Moses and I, on occasion, will talk theology over breakfast. And um, just, he loves to ask questions about life and God, and I ask him questions too. Last year, he's four years old, we're sitting there eating cereal, and he goes, Dad, what would you do if there were no God? And I go, I'd be really sad, and I'd have to find a new job, <laughs> right? <laughs> and I go, Mo, what would you do if there was no God? And he goes, I'd go out and find all the bad guys and punch them in the eyeball. <laughs> and I go, well, why wouldn't you just do that now? And he goes, well, if there is a God, then he can handle the bad guys, Right? So Mo's going to come preach the rest of the sermon for me. No, I'm just kidding. But I mean, four years old, and he's just processing and going, yeah, if there is a God, then that's, that's good news, right? A God of justice, a God who's committed to, to restoration and peace and making things right in the world. That's incredibly good news. Okay, so the invitation of Nahum and many of the other prophets is simply, simply for us to live as a people of hope. 
knowing that, yeah, the world is really messed up. And our situation may not be the same as Judah back in the day, but we are confronted with the reality of an evil, broken, messed up world. And what do we have to say about that? And what we have to say is that God's going to make things right one day. One day the world will be new. One day Jesus' prayer that God's will would be done on earth as in heaven. One day that's going to happen. And as you read through the prophets, they're picturing this day, the day of the Lord, way out and ahead. And it's still ahead of us. That one day God is going to make all things new. And he's the only one who can do it. But we live in trust. We live in hope. And that changes us. That changes the way that we live. On one hand, it would elevate us to a point where even when things are crushing and broken and devastating all around us, we are not crushed. Right? We can endure hardship. But on the other hand, the reality of this promise that God will make everything new one day, it actually teaches us to lament. It teaches us to enter in to the pain and suffering and brokenness in the world around us. Because we know that's not the way things are supposed to be. We know that's not how the story ends. And so when we see suffering and injustice, it breaks our hearts because this is not how God wants things. So we become a people in waiting, a people of hope. But we also become a people of lament and a people of incarnation a people of justice that will pursue and live into the future reality that God has promised one day. So the good news is that there is a just God who's not powerless or indifferent against pain and suffering and evil, but he's going to deal with it completely. That's the good news. The bad news is that there's a just God who's not going to tolerate evil and wickedness and sin. Why is that bad news? Because evil and wickedness and sin aren't just out there, are they? They're in here. And they go way deeper than I would ever want to admit or even know. So that's why Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, talks about, yeah, how adultery is a problem and murder is a problem. But he goes, the heart of adultery is lust. The root of murder is anger. So he's going, God's not just going to deal with adultery and murder. He's actually going to deal decisively with lust and anger. And all of a sudden we go, whoops, that went from being good news to sounding like bad news. Because that's stuff in my heart. That's stuff in my life. So I like the idea of a just God when there's, when there's stuff going on out there that needs to be deal, dealt with. I don't like the idea of a just God when I realize stuff in here needs to be dealt with or stuff in here. And so all of this sets up this kind of foreshadowing of how is God going to make the world new when the problem at the core of it all is the sinful hearts of humanity. Well, there's a story about that, isn't there? If there's only a way for God to give people new hearts, 
If there is only a way for him to forgive sin in a just way that would allow us to be reconciled to him and to each other and to everything else in the world. And so this, echo, this future echo in verse 15, there on the mountains, the feet of one who brings good news, who proclaims peace, it calls our attention to long, for Judah to long for the coming of God's sent one, the Messiah, the one human who would live a righteous or a just life. The one human who lived the life that we were all supposed to live. I'm talking, of course, about Jesus. That there will be good news. And so in the Old Testament, this isn't a complete picture of all these things, but for now, just hear this. In the Old Testament, God's wrath is poured out on nations and cities. And it's just. In the New Testament, God's wrath is poured out on his son. And when Jesus hangs on the cross and declares, it is finished. He's absorbing the pain, the suffering, the wickedness, the injustice that humans all over time in history are guilty of. And God does justice at an incredible cost to himself. And so as Christians, not only can we say that our God isn't just indifferent to suffering and evil in the world, because that's what we want to do when something goes down in the news. We want to go, where was God? Does God even care, right? Obviously God cares. Nahum will let us know that. But even beyond that, we have a God who willingly enters in to this evil and corrupt world and becomes a victim of it. And his only motivation, as far as we know, is his own loving faithfulness. That he is committed to relentlessly pursuing his people, relentlessly maintaining this covenant that he has with us. So the metaphor that you'll find as you read throughout the Minor Prophets that's most helpful for me is God as a faithful husband and Israel and therefore us as his people as an adulterous bride. God is not cool with his people sleeping around. And we understand that, right, in in the vision of marriage. That's not just cool and that happens. God is relentlessly pursuing bringing his bride, his people, back to himself. And he does so in the most ultimate way, through the gift of his son, right? And so the final question then is, how do we respond? What do we do with that? What, how do we react to a just God who's going to make all things right and has begun that process through, through the cross? Well, what he tells them in verse 15 is, celebrate your festivals, Judah, and fulfill your vows. He's saying, you're now free to worship me. You're free to worship me. I'll be your husband. You'll be my wife. You're free to come live with me. Your hearts have been dealt with. Your sins have been paid for. You've been restored back into my family. And so turn from your false gods. Turn from your wicked ways. 
turn from a selfish life, you are free to worship me, to live a God-centered life and to find your home, to find your identity as my people. And that's the simple call for us this morning as well. God would say, you are free to worship. You are free to give all of yourself to me. You don't have to protect yourself anymore, but you are now my people. You are included in my family. You are included in this mission to be blessed, to be a blessing to the world. It's incredibly good news. And so, multiple times throughout Nahum, the imagery of drunkenness is used as a picture of God's wrath being poured out on the Ninevites. And it's this picture all throughout Scripture that God's wrath is this cup that is drunk. And we remember Jesus himself in the garden before his arrest and crucifixion. What does he pray? Father, if there's any way possible, let this cup be taken from me. What's he talking about? Well, he's about to drink the cup of God's wrath. He's about to absorb justice for the world. And so we stand here today simply as grateful recipients of that. Knowing we no longer live in the fear of punishment. We're not motivated to good works by fear. We are motivated by joy and gratitude that Jesus has done this for us. And so it's super humbling, isn't it? But it's super empowering at the same time that we get to be part of this story. And then the final question I'll ask, God clearly has enemies in this book, doesn't he? And if he had enemies back then, does he have enemies today? And if so, wouldn't it make sense for his people to identify, with, identify who those enemies are and to call them out and deal with them, right? Well, I seem to remember Jesus saying something about enemies. And what does he say? I tell you who hear me, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. So he doesn't say you're not going to have enemies. He doesn't say everybody's now cool with God. But he says, you don't have to play God. You don't have to go around punching people in the eyeballs. Because there is a God of justice. And he's going to deal with it. So what we get to do is to bless, to pray. And all of this sounds absurd unless you realize that at the center of the Christian faith, there is a man hanging on the cross dying for his enemies. And Jesus is now saying, go and be my presence in the world. Go and be my people. And absorb, incarnate, embed, love justice, love mercy, walk humbly, because there is a God of justice, and that's the God that we long for. Justin's going to come share a final song with us this morning.
grateful that he's here. We actually used to uh, run in some of the same circles back in the late 90s in my rock and roll day. So super cool to see him again. And as he shares, we're going to receive the offering as well. And it's an opportunity for us, not out of duty or obligation, but out of joy and gratitude to worship God alone. There's a lot of things we can worship in terms of how we use the money that God's entrusted with us. And he says, worship me alone. You can trust me with what you have. So, Father, we're so thankful for your loving kindness, for your faithfulness, your relentless pursuit of your people. And we celebrate the fact that you are a God of justice, that you have not abandoned us, that you don't, it's not like you don't care. You care way more than we do. In fact, if there's anything we would learn, it's that you take sin way more seriously than we do. And so I pray this morning, Lord, would you allow us to see the places in our lives where we are not trusting you, the places where we are not following you or believing the good news about who you are and what you've done, and that you would empower us as your covenant people to live the life that you've called us to in this city and to the ends of the earth. In Jesus' name we pray.